Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey folks, today's episode is brought to you by Litbreaker. Litbreaker is an advertising network for culture vultures. It allows you to advertise on a variety of great culture websites all at once, or piecemeal, one by one. It's up to you. If you want to learn more, go to litbreaker.com and learn how you can advertise on sites like The Nervous Breakdown, The Rumpus, Large-Hearted Boy, The Believer, Full Stop, Volume 1, Brooklyn. Uh, the list goes on. There's a lot there. Check out litbreaker.com for more information. Litbreaker, it's an advertising network for nerds, for art nerds. Go and advertise on it. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, right. everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is an actual conversation. This is totally unabridged. How's it going? I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. It's good to be with you. I appreciate you listening. Uh, my guest today is Amy Lawless. She's a poet. Uh, her latest collection is called My Dead, and it's out there now from Octopus Books. Amy Lawless, My Dead, Octopus Books. Very excited to talk to Amy. Uh, we had a great conversation that's coming up in just a moment. Uh, what is going on right now? I have been working, uh, on a book. I've been editing this morning, a book that, uh, the nervous breakdown, uh, is going to publish. And, uh, it's a great essay collection by Sandy Friedman. And, uh, one of these essays actually appeared on the nervous breakdown. It's called, uh, Warhol's, uh, last starlet. And then there's another one called the flip turn, I believe both of which appeared on the site, but they're part of the collection, and uh, I was reading them this morning, or rereading them, and it's just some great lines. It gets me thinking. Like, Warhol's Last Starlet is all about how Sandy, when she was young, thought she was going to be Edie Sedgwick, and then she went to New York, and then she uh, wasn't Edie Sedgwick. We all do that sort of thing. Like when I was a you know when I was a young guy I I cringe even saying this but I thought I was going to live some expatriated like Hemingway esque lifestyle. I had such a such a uh, stupid, <laughs> uninformed view of the state of the world relative to publishing. Like I actually thought 
you know, at least for a, a moment that when I entered the world of publishing, that it was going to be similar to these fantasies that I had. And it was obviously completely not that. So the point is that, you know, in this essay, uh, Warhol's last starlet, there are a couple of, uh, book reviews sort of embedded or braided into it. One of which is about a, a book. I think it's called the unlived life. It's by this guy. He's writing about how we have, you know, he's, he's basically arguing that we have these imaginary lives that we build up for ourselves and they, uh, they help us in a way, even though they sort of torture us, they help us to, uh, get through life and to tolerate the reality of our mediocrity, our, our just basic human mediocrity. Like is everybody sort of mediocre in a way? There are some extraordinary humans who sort of set the bar. I want to be one. <laughs> It'd be so nice to be an extraordinary human who achieves extraordinary things and has extraordinary wisdom and an enormously rich social life with lots of very close friends that they're in touch with constantly. <laughs> as opposed to the mediocre life where uh, you're achieving things here and there, none of which are all that extraordinary, none of which uh, garner very much attention at all in the grand scheme of things. Uh, you have a fairly rich social life in fits and starts, uh, but the friendships that you have as you get older uh, get harder to maintain at a really uh, satisfying, consistent level, and you see people that you care about uh, here and there. Do you know what I'm saying? So anyway, there's another, uh, there's another book in there by Leanne Shapton. I, I can't believe I didn't write all this down, but I think it's called swimming studies. It's that memoir that Leanne Shapton wrote and, uh, my God. Yeah. Swimming studies. Hang on a second. I'm going to verify this just so I don't look like a jackass. Hang on. Okay. Yeah, it is swimming studies, but you know, she was, a, um, the point is that she was a, uh, competitive swimmer and was trying for the Olympics and it didn't work out. And there's this passage in the book where she describes one of her teammates who missed out on the Olympics by like a, or not even by like, by an actual one hundredth of a second. That was the dividing line between her lived life and her unlived life. So she had this dream. Uh, she missed it by a hundredth of a second in a race. And that is where her life bifurcated. And it's very rare in, in a human life that you can actually pinpoint that moment that pivot point where, you know, your unlived life, uh, goes in one direction and your lived life goes in the other. So I'm trying to think of my life. Like, was there a moment where things pivoted? It's hard to say. It's hard to say for people who don't compete in sports. <laughs> I don't know. I'm sure there are other people. I'm sure there are people who have examples of this. If you have an example of where your life bifurcated and you can remember it perfectly, email me at letters at other PPL.com. I want to hear about this. So there's that. And then, uh, Joan Rivers just died, which everybody's talking about on Twitter. And, uh, that makes me sad. She always made me laugh. She's bawdy and, uh, rude. And I loved it. Truly. I used to get my, uh, people tease me. I used to say like Joan Rivers was one of my favorite comedians and, uh, my wife would laugh and my mother would kind of tease me, but I always thought she was great. 
you know, she was a little rude. I'm sure if you were on the receiving end, it probably wasn't always that fun, but you know, I think she was good hearted. And the thing about her, you know, more than anything is that she just kept working, which I find admirable and also a little terrifying. I don't know if you guys saw that documentary about her. What was it called? Like Joan Rivers, a piece of work or something like that. But there was a documentary made on her just a few years ago and, uh, it showed how she worked. She kept these filing cabinets full of jokes and she was constantly looking at her calendar, trying to book gigs at like Indian casinos and, you know, she lived for it and she would panic if she didn't have her, her calendar filled, which, you know, I'm sure there's issues there. She could have just relaxed a little bit, but she didn't want to. The point I'm trying to make is that she just kept making stuff. She worked hard. There's a lesson in that. So RIP Joan Rivers. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. And uh, let's get on with the program. My guest once again is Amy Lawless. Uh, she's a poet. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, she's got a book out called My Dead, available from Octopus Books. And I had a really great time talking with her. I hope you guys like this one. Here she is. This is Amy Lawless, and her book, once again, is called My Dead. I am at John Jay College. I'm in New York City, um, in Manhattan, um, and I am sitting in um, an adjunct um, office in the English department at John Jay College. So they actually have an office for the adjunct. Yeah, they actually have three offices. They have this new building, and... Um, so there are these three really nice offices. Um, you'd think usually, you know, I mean, usually there are all these horror stories about adjuncting, and of course it's horrible. Um, but John Jay actually, it's, it's part of the CUNY system. Like I get health insurance, Whoa. and um, I have access to this office that has about eight um, eight computers, and um, it's not my office to just sit in whenever I want, but. Um, you know, it's sort of a shared situation where, like, you know, it's understood that you're kind of you're coming in on those two days and using it for a few hours before or after your classes. Yeah, that's um, great. But, yeah, it's really great comparatively to what um, to, the, to the other horror stories um, that I've been privy to. Um, it's a pretty good situation. It didn't When I started teaching here, it was not the case. But now it's, you know, it's, it's totally um, nice and posh. They have printers that work. Whoa. Um, yeah, it's weird. That's crazy. So, <laughs> yeah. and you're from Boston originally? I am, yes, absolutely. Born and raised. Um, 
born and raised. Yeah, I both of my parents were born and raised in Boston as well. Um, it's um, a, it's it's a nice it's a nice place to grow up. I I had a great time. We lived at the end of a dead end street. Um, so it's a neighborhood. Was this yeah. suburb, Was this suburban Boston or were you in the city? Well, it's 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 um well Boston's different than um well it's, it's, well every city is different. Um, but you know you think it's they're just these neighborhoods. And there are certain neighborhoods, like in the city proper, where, you know, sort of lots of business occurs. Um, but most neighborhoods in Boston are are generally residential. And this is a neighborhood called Roslindale, um, right next to Jamaica Plain. My parents grew up in Jamaica Plain. And, um, yeah, they bought this house um, in Roslindale when I was around three years old and had a you know, nice backyard. Um, yeah, plenty of plenty of room to to hang out and be, um, be a kid. Well, yeah, see, I, I, I've always, I have this one experience in Boston, which I think I've mentioned on this program and I really enjoyed it. And yet I have a friend who's from Boston and she loathes it. And mm-hmm. I've heard people shit talk Boston. I don't get it. It's, yeah. It's a nice city. It's got a nice public transportation. It's got the river. It's like, it's got, you know, Fenway park. Yeah. Um, um, it, it's funny because there is a lot of um, there are, there's some you know historical race, racial excuse me my allergies some historical racial strife. Um, however, I found it quite pleasant. Um, certainly, it, my life changed when I moved to New York City, where the you know the diversity factor goes up, and you realize that oh the things that I thought were diverse when I was a kid and teenager were not. Um, Boston is a very white place, but you know I had certainly a lovely childhood. I didn't experience any um any of that thankfully but um what do you, what, yeah. do you what do your parents do um well my mom well most of the time when i was growing up my mom was a homemaker um and she ended up now she's like working in a hospital and she has been for a while my father was is sort of i guess you would say he was a middle manager he worked for an import export company and so he was sort of a, a freight forwarder i think they called it i i never truly got my mind around what he actually did but it had to do with um custom house paperwork isn't it funny though like because i never really wrapped my head around what my dad did either like i don't you know if, if you're not in the same profession or if you're if you're mm-hmm. if your parent is not really um you know open and, and involving you in all of that which i don't even know if would you know i don't know if that would be appropriate anyhow but I have no idea what he did for the for the most part. <laughs> your dad, you had no idea. I mean, I know what he did. I know what he did nominally in the same way that you know what your dad did, but like I don't yeah. have like a really you know I don't grasp it with any kind of yeah. Words. I can just kind of yeah. tell people, you know. Yeah, and it was like always fun to like hear. I mean, he would come home and like talk about his coworkers and you know the very and he would he would talk about his work. I just sort of um, I like this bit more of the like you know like the human interest stories, like what his coworkers were up to or. You know, stupid things people say to their coworkers and bosses. That stuff always stuck with me. But <clears throat> how customs works? Uh, sorry, yeah, I have no um, interest. But it, I feel like you know, my dad was an extremely hard worker. He um, he worked at that company for like forty five years. See, that's like before. so. That's so old school. That doesn't happen anymore, Donald. No, it doesn't happen. And it's like. Like when I tell people like how many years he worked at his company, like nobody believed me. Like nobody stays at a company for more than even ten years sounds insane, you know? Right. And does it mean did, yeah. he, get, did he get like a pension and all that old school stuff? Or um, I believe he like at some point he got a four hundred one k plan um, that he you know gave generously, and I think that you know most empl- many employers 
match a certain percent. So I think the company did that. But it was a small company. It was started by just this, it was a family company that he was not a member. He was not a member of that family. So there was only so much so high he could get in the company, right. even though he, you know, did all the, you know, the custom house, you know, training. He was a licensed custom house broker. Um, but yeah, it was, it, it was this job that he had for a long time. And it really, it did, it did like sort of teach me a lot about like, you know, sticking with things. And, um, you know, if you stay working for a company, you can, you know, you can be proud of it and you can be proud of all the work you did. And like his, his employees, an employee, like everybody at the company, like adored him. They, they threw him a retirement party a couple of years ago. And, um, I, my sisters and my, my mom and I all went and, you know, people, I'd met cups, a few of them before, but they just adored my father. Like he was like this friendly, you know, guy who would never get angry. And, you know, they just loved being around him and he worked his butt off. I mean, this, this paperwork, I can't even like describe to you how boring it would sound to me. Yeah. But then again, it was not interesting to me. So I think that like anything, if you, um, if you, if, if you've been doing something for a while, it um it interests you. Well, but, I think yeah. I think I mean I think when you have a family to support or what, like you just make it interesting after a certain yeah. point. And uh, mm-hmm. it's funny that you say that because I my dad had a retirement party a few years ago too, and I went and got to like that was the first time I actually got to see mm-hmm. him with his coworkers, yeah. and I got yeah. I, I'm not like one. I mean, I guess I get kind of emotional, but I got genuinely choked up at that party. Yeah, <laughs> I was so yeah. emotional. <laughs> Yeah. And yeah, they just like really appreciate it. And think about it when you're spending like that much, like, you know, we're both writers. So like we have our jobs, but then we also have the things that we're you know passionate about. And then of course the people in our lives who were, who we love. Um, but you know, there, there are a lot of people out there who, um, they, they go to their job and that's their, that's, that's their place, right? Well, sure. Yeah. I mean, you spend 40 years doing something, you spend it yeah. day in and day out with the same people. And yeah, they're your, they're your family, right? Yeah. Oh well, and, I, and it's also like, it's sort of emotional. Like when a parent retires, especially like my dad was like, you know, up at five in the morning and like out of the house by seven, like my whole life, you know, he, mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Just like too, yeah. super hard working. And then like, you see that phase of his life come to an end and like, that's like, sort of scary and emotional you're like oh, mm-hmm. you know and and then also you appreciate how hard they work you know like yeah absolutely yeah i think that's what i was trying to get at and just was failing it describing it so yeah. okay so I'm, so this clearly your father working in customs in boston mm-hmm. like now i know why you're a poet you know like that's really no i'm kidding <laughs> so how did that happen like is, is one of your parents oh. artistic or did you um, were they handing you books as a kid or yeah, yeah, well, both of them would hand me books. Um, my my mother's not a neither of my parents are writers, but they both read a lot. Um, and my mother always would have these um, poetry anthologies, poetry books. Um, you know, even like you know the, some some of these like night, night before the night before Christmas books illustrated. Um, but I specifically remember a um, a large anthology of of favorite poems for children. And my mom would read them out loud to my sister and I um, all the time. And I, I always really enjoyed the, the rhythm of language, even though my poems do not you know, rhyme or have any concern for meter or sound, really. Um, but I always enjoyed, um, you know, Hiawatha was one of my favorites. Edgar Allan Poe poems were, were also um, my faves. Yeah, so, yeah, so I, poetry was just kind of around, I guess, but also lots of other things, too. Well, and then what about uh, your hatred of peas? I've read up on you a little oh, bit. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 
Um, yeah, I, I'm like any. Um, <laughs> so yeah, so so we also subscribe to this literary magazine for children called Cricket Magazine. I don't even know if it's still around. Um, and it was this awesome magazine that had like short fiction geared toward children, and they would have drawing contests and poetry contests. My sister Molly um, would, you know, she's she's an artist. She would just in two seconds she would drop a picture of like a dog wearing a dress, send it in, and win first prize. Like that was just like that's just her. Um, so wait, your sister's like a gifted visual artist. You're a, a yes. gifted writer. Like, wait, there's, yeah. and there's no tracing this in your genealogy. Like, not you're... not to my knowledge at all. Um, but I think that um, we were like we were encouraged to do whatever we wanted to do really. Um, but also we were encouraged to take care, not to take care of ourselves. Our parents took great care of us, but to be able to occupy ourselves with, you know, they, they wouldn't let us just watch TV all afternoon. They wanted us to be like doing things that were productive, I guess, whether it was playing Barbies or, um, going outside, playing with riding our bikes. Um, so they did, my mom definitely was like on top of us to like be well-rounded and, not just watch Three's Company, which was what we would really just want to do. <laughs> I love. <Three's> um, <laughs> I know who doesn't. And my dad would, you know, it was. I have another funny story about my dad. He, um, you know, he really hated us watching Three's Company because it had all of this um, innuendo, right? Yeah. And but you know we thought we didn't, and we didn't you know we were innocent kids. We did not understand these these the innuendos. We just thought it was like slapstick, right? And. Um, <laughs> there were all these times my dad would come home from work and, you know, we would just be sitting there watching it and he would always get so angry. Like, like girls, this is not appropriate for you. And so finally we just sort of pretend, we just made sure that we didn't watch it in front of him. Right. Um, like Mr. Furley, like listening in through the pipes or whatever. Yeah. It was just, yeah. Like people like naked behind bushes, you know, like yeah. all this ridiculous stuff. And um, Jack Tripper. So then um, when John Ritter died, my dad sent us, my sister and Molly and I, this this hilarious email. Like, I know you've never seen this show, girls, but I'm very sorry. You know, your favorite actor passed away today. Yeah, he was, um, he, was he was beloved. He was beloved. He was really beloved. Yeah. And, and yeah, and, but I, I also feel like it, me watching it when I was a girl, like it didn't, nothing stuck. Like I didn't, I don't remember any of the sexual the, nature do you? I, I mean, mean, you not, must have been not, like... a, not in like a pervy way. It was just silly. Yeah. It was just goofy, mm-hmm. and like they were. It was more like they were playing a trick on Mr. <laughs> Furley or like the Ropers or whatever. And then yeah, yeah, um, you know, yeah. Jack, Jack Tripper was sort of a hero to me. He seemed cool to me when I was a kid. Like I was like, I want to be like him. You know? Yeah. What was, what was <laughs> yeah. the name of his restaurant? The Bistro or Jack's Bistro? Wasn't it? No. Wait, was it? I forget. Wasn't there like a a, a cooler name like um the the bees knees or something? Shit. Now I'm going to Google it. Hang on. I'm getting... Yeah, I'm, yeah. You have I to have find to. this out. Hang on. I'm going to find this out because this is going to bother me. This, the this, Regal Beagle. The Regal Beagle. Well, the Regal Beagle is where they hung out. Okay. That's where. Oh, yeah. And, that's what I was thinking of. That's where he and Larry Dallas... Yeah, it's called... But his restaurant was called Jack's Bistro. Yes. There's the memory. But the Regal Beagle. Good memory. Yeah. And I always wanted to eat dinner there because it seemed so posh. Remember? Yeah. yeah. It was like those... With, like, his, with his outfit, that white... <laughs> chef uniform yeah exactly so that was that was cool right you want to know something crazy is that uh i live in los angeles and uh on the i guess jack or um john ritter went to hollywood high school uh-huh as did i think he did but anyway his like there's like the side of their auditorium you know which faces out towards the street 
mm-hmm. is like you know emblazoned with like all these like airbrushed portraits of famous alumni, and he's one of them. So oh, that's so cool. Well, yeah. you know, he's he's the best. Yeah. So, um, so okay. So peas <laughs> though peas, and then you became. Oh a yeah, peas. Okay. So um, I mean, like any kid, I had my the things that I loathed. I was pretty much an easygoing kid, um, but I really didn't like peas at all. It was the one thing that I would just avoid. And like, you know, like all parents, my parents would always be like, yo, eat your peas, eat your peas. But then um, Cricket Magazine had this contest that, um, you know, write about something that you either really, really love or really, really like hate. Well, not, not something, like a food. It was supposed to be a, a food. So my mom was like, oh, you love food. You know, why don't you write about a food that you really, really love? And so I read the directions again to myself thinking, hmm, I don't know about this. But I also, you know, you have to understand my sister Molly was drawing these like amazing, like award-winning drawings. And like I was, you know, sibling rivalry is a real thing. And I wanted to be cool like her. And I couldn't draw because, I mean, I could draw, but it was just like, why bother when, you know, you're sitting next to somebody who can draw a caricature of your likeness in three strokes. Um, so I, I, you know, thought really hard and I thought, I read the direction said you could write about something you really don't like either. So I you know, remember that I hated peas and my mother was always trying to make me eat them and it was just a bummer. Um, so I wrote this one line poem, peas cannot be eaten with ease. And that was my first poem. And my mom, you know, she's like washing the dishes. She looks over and she, she's like, oh, that's good. Keep going. You know, write, write the line. And I just sat back in my chair and I said, no, it's done. That's it. And um, brevity, brevity is the soul of wit right there. Yeah. And like, which is funny because my poems now are not necessarily brief or short um, or nor do they really rhyme anymore. Um, but to me, like this was like done. So it was like my first example also of like artistic or poetic brattiness like you know i'm like i think many writers i'm sure and fiction writers too can agree to the idea of like you know brattiness is almost like the order of the day if you're not like really picky about your own work um you know who's gonna be you know like so i i always like think back to that whenever i get like really like kind of stormy in my head when i'm editing a poem like you know, yeah, peas cannot be eaten with these. It's done. You know when it's done, right? Yeah. Well, you know hope, when you're... Hopefully. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, well, I think that comes... The confidence comes over time, but for me, that came when I was eight years old. <laughs> um, and I've lost... Don't worry, I've lost the confidence and then gained a little bit of it back. But... Right. You had such clarity. that Maybe you peaked right there at eight, you know? Yeah, I peaked at eight. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, uh, but anyway, so the other the other thing is that, like, I think that that poem, like... You know, it didn't even win first place, but it, it, it placed, like, either got, like, second, third, or honorable mention, I don't remember, but, um, you know, when I got that little um, certificate in the mail from Cricket Magazine, we, we we framed it, we hung it in my bedroom, and it really, like, it was in my, hung in my bedroom up through when I think I graduated from high school, because it was just, we lived in the same house, um, but it really was this, like, object in my room that said that I was a poet. Yeah, see, that, that's I think, why I'm like, interested. Which I had a lot of, yeah, so I think that had a lot of power. Like, you know, think just think about, like, how meaningless how meaningless high school is. <laughs> and, like, if you can ha- find your identity somewhere, whether it's, um, you know, at, like, as a poet, you know, that felt really, um, 
it was something to hold on to. I don't know whether it was like it worked or what, but no, it, it was certainly something that I have and had and have hung on to. Any kind of um, encouragement, any kind of like people telling you you're good at something, whether it's a totally, teacher or a yeah. parent or, you know, yeah. it, especially some external entity, like, you know, like some sort yeah. of, because to a kid, like a cricket magazine, you know, that's like to, to a kid that's huge, you know, like, yeah, it was, it, it was totally huge. And like, when I think back about like why I didn't win first place, but like, it didn't even have, the poem didn't even have a title. Like it was just really that line. So it was like, I mean, like, <laughs> I, I just like stopped. So I kind of think it's okay that it was honorable mention, but like clearly I'm still thinking about it. It's still yeah, sort of still turned better. over. And, <laughs> I'm going to someday I'll find, you know, I bet like the, the, the judge was just some, you know, overworked adjunct who like, you know, read cricket magazine um, submissions for like four dollars yes. a month or something well they they probably just appreciated how like how like simply bitter you were about the whole p thing you know yeah but you know the great thing is that what that lesson taught me was that a poetry can do things because after that my parents no longer forced me to eat peas see and yeah so like to me that was like i was able to enact change in my life as an eight-year-old so I, I think that like that also has stuck with me because, you know, many might say that like poetry doesn't do anything. Well, I think I disagree <laughs> because my parents stopped annoying the fuck out of me. Uh, but then, you know, you know, and then you think it's okay. And then I went back to visit my parents this summer as I do like, you know, like four times a year at least. And, um, and like my mom put some peas on a plate, like she was serving me. And like my dad and I looked at her like, like what the fuck? I didn't say that before. <laughs> right. And I was like, I'm not eating these. And she's like, still? I was like, jeez, mom. Like, haven't you read my interview in Interview Magazine? <laughs> right. <laughs> Keep up with my media, mom. Yeah, mom. Um, I've been interviewed about this very issue. No, but like, I, it's just really funny. Like, so my your, parents are. Is your level of hatred for peas, has it gotten to the point of like phobia? And I, the only reason I ask this, because I have like a friend, and I mean, I've seen this happen here and there where like, you know, certain foods uh, gross people out to the point where like they don't even want to be near them. If they are like on their plate, it will affect their ability to enjoy the rest of their meal. You oh, know? it's not. It's not that bad. I mean, I think that they, they're, you know, these disgusting mush balls that do not dance in my mouth. I do not, they, they, they taste bitter to me. I don't understand, even with butter. And I've tried them since I was eight. I'm not like that crazy. They just continue to repel. I, I'm repulsed by them. Yeah. Um, I'm not allergic to them. I'm not afraid of them. I just really do not prefer them. Yeah. I have a friend who's like, what is he, scared of pickles? Really? Like he won't, he can't deal. It's like pickles and feet. Like anything that's pickled, or <laughs> like just, just when like a small cuc. Like a, if he gets a like a sandwich and there's like a pickle on the plate, like he sends the plate back. <laughs> oh my god! Yeah, it's excessive. That's it's a little ex crazy. It's a little crazy. But at the same time, you know, he has a clear vision. He knows what he wants. He does, and you know, <laughs> I don't, I don't, I don't begrudge somebody for not liking something. You know, a certain. Yeah, but like it is really bratty of him because, like somebody who's working their butt off for minimum wage in the kitchen, like could like that guy's predilection for, you know, or dislike of pickles is like the last thing that this guy has to worry about. He's just trying to like make it through shift. Right. Yeah. But I think like he, like he always explicitly asks like no pickles, please like anywhere on the plate. Like, he, yeah. So it's like, it's like a thing. And, and the thing too yeah. about it is like when you're in his presence, like he, 
it, it, like, it genuinely, like it's genuine fear. <laughs> but, but the funny thing about that guy, and I think I know that guy, the funny thing about him is that he's actually a pickle. So for him, it's cannibalism. Maybe. That could be it. <laughs> I don't know. What, and like he's also like bare feet of any kind, like bare feet completely. Really? Yes. He won't deal. He might be on the autism spectrum, not to, you know, get scientific, <laughs> but, you know, it's like, it's, that's, that's pretty, that's some pretty picky shit, right? Yeah. No, he's got. I've his... seen a few episodes of Parenthood. I know what, I know what Asperger's is. Yeah. I don't know what, you know, I don't know if that's it, but I mean, there's definitely some issues there that he needs. To wow. So, wow. uh, your last name, Lawless. Yeah. Uh-huh. That's an awesome last name. Yeah, isn't it? <laughs> and it's, and it's not, so it's not a pseudonym. Like that's your last it's name. It's not a pseudonym. My father is James Lawless. His father was Albert Lawless. Um, yeah, that's that's my last name. God. It's um, I believe it's of um, Irish, Celtic origin. Um, there is, I believe, a um, an American or or he might be retired now. American soccer player Alexi Lawless. Yeah. Who um, is a redhead. I believe he's also of um, Irish descent, Ameri- Irish American descent. And that's L A L L A S or L A L A S? L A L L A S? L A L L A S. And so I think it's from the same Gaelic origin, um, but just somehow came out differently. So I, like, I, yeah. I like your spelling better. I think Me that, too. It's just like, yeah. it has like a, the rebel connotation. It gives you an edge. Yeah. It's automatic. And it makes people like, yeah. And I, I'm pretty sure that that's why I survived high school. Like nobody messed with me. <laughs> and like, I'm just like a kitten. Like I'm just a, a sweet girl. And, um, but yeah, no one ever messed with me in high school, which was, I think, really awesome. Okay. So school growing up, you, you were, you said you were a kitten. You were a nice kid. <laughs> nice quiet kid i didn't really stick my neck out um uh, my sister my older sister and i um how much older is she she's just a year and a half older than okay. me so Irish um, twins. yeah yeah um so she was like my bff and worst enemy growing up um and we both went to but she was a year ahead of me at school and so we both went to a high school called boston latin school which is like the oldest public high school in the country. Wow. Um, so you have to like take a test to get into it. I guess I, I don't know what the name for that is. Um, and you were like, but, you, in your, your entrance exam you, or your entrance essay, you wrote, this test is not the best. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. After your test. <laughs> no, I think it was more just like kind of like an, an SSAT, like a SAT for just younger, for people entering the seventh grade. Um, and by the way, that earlier that your test is not the best. I was trying to make a joke about the peas oh. or not eating. With oh these. yeah, your test was not the best. I don't mean yeah. that. I don't want to. Over, <laughs> I don't want to overexplain my joke. But, but you, but you might, um, you might find a contest for that line. Yeah, I could. Yeah, I could. Go, <laughs> I, could I could go and search. Um, but good education. I mean, that's the other thing I feel about Boston. Yeah. For some reason, I, I have this idealized vision of Massachusetts in my head, like. People get educated well. They're like at Walden. Right. They're at like Walden Pond, like writing poetry. Yep. But like, what was it like? You're in Boston Latin. You're getting a good education. Yeah. Um, the teacher. Well, one thing that w- was stressed above all was discipline. Um, so it was like, you know, if the teacher tells you to do something, you better do it. Whereas, like now, I teach. Um, when I started teaching college or when I started, um, when I actually started college myself, actually, um, the students were not as disciplined as like eighth graders at Boston Latin school. Like they really, uh, you know, they would give us like all these 
misdemeanor, misdemeanor marks. Like if you made fun of your teacher or if you like spoke out of turn or your stuff was late, um, they would like give you this mark that would bring down your conduct grade. And everybody was such a great little grade grubber because they all were, you know, were academic um, achievers. Um, everybody really, you know, you you learned to respect and um, be quiet in the in the right at the right times. Um, so it it, it taught me um, real discipline, and I think that that itself um, and time management too. So by the time I got to college, like. I knew how to manage my time. I knew how to, I had, I had plenty of study skills. Certainly they improved, but, um, but yeah, I think that like Boston Latin, it was difficult and yet, um, I'm, everybody who goes there was like proud of it. Um, even though it annoyed us so deeply while we were there, it, it just kind of made college a breeze sort of, I guess. That's great. Yeah. But, but that, you know, high school, I, I look back on high school. I think high school was maybe the most intense school. Yeah. That I ever had. Maybe that's. Did you perfect. feel like your high school was really hard? No, I mean I don't yeah. know. Yeah, I mean yes and no. I did well in high yeah. school. I did well in high school until like my junior year, and then I just, yeah. sort, of, I just sort of got tired of it. But um, yeah. it was a good school. It was a good public school, and um, you know, we. I definitely remember working really hard. I worked really hard in junior high too. Yeah. Uh, okay. But then, good. But yeah. Then you, then you get to college, and you have it's like you have these classes, and they're spread out, and you get to manage your time. And I yeah. Think, I think if you have good habits going in, and you sort of get right. it, then yeah. college was almost. I mean, undergrad was almost easier. College was almost easier for me. Um, yeah. Yeah. I I think I agree with you. Um, yeah. We also needed. We at Boston Line, we also had to take Latin. So I took five years of Latin. So it's in seventh grade. I started taking Latin. In eighth grade, we had to start taking another language, so I took German. I don't remember any of it. Like Latin or German? I mean, like, when I see, like, I mean, don't give me a Latin test right now, but, like, usually when I see something that's in Latin, I can kind of figure it out, um, or I know how to figure it out. But, um, and I, you know, Roman numerals are a breeze, but, like, I, and, and no one speaks Latin, so it's sort of just a, a red language anyway. But doesn't, um, it, doesn't it help? Like, I've, like the, 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 um, the cell, when it came to Latin, when I was in high school, even though I didn't take it, was always that like it helps you understand English better. It makes you better. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it, it definitely helped my native you know, language and vocabulary abilities, Right. Um, as did my study of German. But I, I, you know, don't bring me to Germany. I won't be able to help <laughs> you order a... Um, a, uh, I don't even know what you would order in Kugel or yeah, a Stein of beer and a sausage of some sort. I, you know, I, yeah, I, 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 yeah. But I feel like it, it comes back to you though, like because I took Spanish. It does, yeah. I, I speak a little Spanish and a little French, and like if I'm in a place where that's the the native tongue, like it, you know, it takes me a little bit, but I can. So you think I'll you think I'll be okay? If I think, I, if yeah, I, yeah. I mean, maybe you like get a you know do like a a little bit of like a prep before you go, you know, on YouTube. Yeah. But you can you would it would come back to you in ways that would probably surprise you. Yeah, I think so too. So it like sounds like happy childhood. Totally happy childhood. Yeah. Okay, and like nothing, nothing. Uh, you know, no big challenges. Uh, like socially, where you were good enough. Yeah, I mean, I definitely, like, wasn't, like, the popular kid, but I certainly, um, I had, like, my, like, couple of friends, you know, 7th, 8th, and ninth grade, and then, like, by around 10th grade, like, I, you know, got a lot more friends. I I think I started, like, manic panicking my hair and um, wearing flannel. Yeah. What does manic panicking your hair mean? Why do it, I not it know? Means, it means, it's basically, like, this horrible paint that you, like, dye your hair, this, like, 
crazy color. Uh-huh. They sell it at like Newbury. They would sell it at Newbury Comics, okay. which was a record store. Did they? Do they have that in other parts of the country? Maybe I don't. Newbury Comics or Manic Panic? Newbury Comics. Uh, not where I grew. Up. I grew up in the. It Midwest. was like a record store that would also sell like, you know, mugs and T-shirts. Okay. And um, so I dyed my hair with Manic Panic a few times, but still, like, it was at this like super academic high school, so like that was like rebellion you know yeah, no drugs you weren't like that was pretty straight and narrow yeah nobody like you know there might there might have been like some kid there were definitely some kids who were like smoking pot and like i think i smoked pot in like senior year of high school that was like that was as as awful as i got then okay um yeah, but yeah. yeah i mean i think my friends we were just like dorks yeah but that's good. Yeah. I, like, I hope my daughter turns out to be a, like a sweet dork. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah. Um, and then like, uh, it's like you're Irish. So I mean, like booze, like that's not a thing in your family or anything. Well, of course it is. <laughs> I mean, I'm Irish. <laughs> but, I know, but I mean, like, you don't have like, like you never like went overboard or you know, no, none of that. no, no, yeah. no, 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 no. So you got your shit um, together. Yeah, I think I, I think I do. Yeah. And you graduated. I mean, you graduated with good grades. Oh, by the way, you, yep. you mentioned not being the popular kid, and like, a, I like a, a thought raced through my mind where it was like, like, what the hell is popularity in high school and these pecking orders? Oh, it's the worst. You don't want to be popular in high school because then you don't want to peak. Then you know what I mean. But what is it even that like what is what is it that establishes these hierarchies? Like you know because like yeah, I, I think I've said uh, to somebody before on the show like where it was like you know really the pecking order among boys was determined in elementary school based on who could run the fastest. Oh, so it was like this sports thing and this like really Darwinian kind of crude physical. Mm-hmm. I mean, right? And like, what is it among yeah. them and the girls? It's just like who's pretty or like what you know what is it like. I mean, like, I just, like, kept my head down and, like, <laughs> laughed at the right times. And then, like, I think that, like, around, like, sixth grade, I um, I started being good at, like, the little quips, like, at the right time um, that, like, weren't going to, like, send me to the principal's office, but, like, were usually just, like, good-natured, like, funny things. Right. Um, and I always was, like, in sixth grade, I think I was, like, the, um, you know, the smartest kid in my school <laughs> before I went to Boston Latin, like... I went to this Catholic school for grammar school. And so like by sixth grade, I was like, you know, the smartest kid in the class, but I was also like not annoying. So I think I just like slipped through, but I also like, wasn't like dating. Um, I, I just sort well, of was give like, your, give yourself a break. You were in sixth grade for God's sake. I know. I think I just tried to be like invisible. Yeah. I think that, and I was like happy with that. Um, and you know, like once again, no one's going to pick on lawless. Yeah, no. So I think it just, I think I just sort of like squeaked through whatever bully mechanisms were in place, which there were, but there are everywhere. Yeah. Um, But um, I think popular for girls, I think it's like, I mean, it might be like a sexual selection thing. Like, you know, the girls who are the pretty girls and have like spend more money on clothing and create their little mean girl cliques. Yeah. It's um, so weird how that all happened. Yeah, because I remember, really and people like ne- like never meaner. Like I don't think girls were ever meaner. Kids were ever meaner than like in sixth to seventh grade. Like that's really yeah. That's a me. Well, that's like- when well, <laughs> well that that's when their you know puberty is beginning and their bodies are changing and their minds are changing. So like, there's so much like awkwardness because of 
the just like the mismatched like body, mind, and like sexual organs. Well, I think like nowadays girls are going through puberty in like fourth grade. It scares uh, me. And it's like, but yeah. Then, but then the thing is, is that the guys are like a year or two behind. So there's all this like, it's all messed up. <laughs> it's not yeah, even... it's yeah, it's it's terror. It's like pure terror. I couldn't imagine like being like a sixth grade teacher and like every year it's the same old nightmare shit, right? Yeah. That's like, that takes a special <sighs> kind. I, I actually, you know, I have fond memories of my sixth grade teacher, but yeah, me too. But I remember once like that was when kids were supposed to be wearing deodorant. I remember once uh, my teacher was named Miss Nurbon and like she was this really nice, cool teacher who was just like, you know, she should have been retired, but she wasn't for some reason. And she, like, one day it smelled so bad because the kids weren't wearing deodorant yet. They were uh, supposed to, they should have. Yeah. And she had to, like, light a candle and walk around the room. Oh, God. <laughs> and I will never forget that because she was so disgusted. I think I was wearing deodorant because, like, right. I was, like, paranoid. You're a good kid. And, um, yeah, I was always, and, I, I'm still paranoid. Like, I don't, that, like, how a person smells, like, I never get that. Like, if I feel like I smell, I just, like, I can't deal at all. Like, I think yeah. you take care of yourself. Jesus. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> You're not homeless. But at the same time, the body is a beautiful thing. And sometimes a little bit of smell, um, I mean, you know, I, a natural scent is just human, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. No, I should say like in the same breath, I can't stand perfume. And it, I mean, oh, I, yeah. but it's like, it's like, this is how I feel about plastic surgery too, which is sort of like yeah. semi-related. It's like, I can't stand plastic surgery. It makes me feel sad unless I don't notice it. And then I'm like, wow, you look fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> and, well, I mean, plastic surgery, like for some people, it, it saves their lives. Like if you were in yeah. a disfiguring car accident, like there's, there are wonderful things. I'm like, talking um, about cosmetics, you know, like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it looks fake, right? Yeah, it, I mean, just, that's... Like, it looks like an advertisement for like, oh God, I don't want to die. We're gonna get... Advertisement for, for not dying. For, for just like, I don't want to die. I don't want to die. That's what I'm thinking when I it's see like true, a It's true, yeah. And so, Wait, so why don't you like perfumes? This is, this is the comparison, is that I like perfume okay. as long as like I barely notice it. But it's yeah, like if, yeah. I get, if I get on an elevator and there's like some woman like overload, it's just like, oh my God. Yeah. And, yeah. It's like, what is she trying to do? Like, what is she trying to do to your senses? Like, do we only have five senses and she's just trying to like, like kill one of them, she's right? like paralyze. Yeah. It's, but it, the weird thing is like, there are some scents. Like I personally don't like perfume either. However, I do um, use um, an essential oil, amber oil, which for some reason like smells good on me, but like... I, I I agree with you. Like when I smell perfume on other people, I'm like, ew, gross. Just, just Get out of here. Bit, just a little bit. Just go yeah. easy. Like, but it's I fine. think also like yeah, and also essential oils will kind of like mix with your own um, your own scent, and yeah. so it smells different on every. And perfume is supposed to do this too, but um, I find perfume kind of too much. Yeah, I can't deal. Like I live in a building with an elevator, and like if I'm out, like I'll exercise and I'll be like sweaty. Uh, yeah. And then like, I'll get into the lobby and I'll see one of my neighbors. I like, I'll be like, you know what? You just ride up. Like, I can't, I don't want to be on the elevator with you in this closed space. This is kind of neurotic. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> I, I, I think that my neighbors appreciate it. I'm trying to be respectful. Like who wants to be yeah. on an elevator with some guy who just finished like running five miles or something? You know? Oh yeah. You must really smell at that yeah, point. Yeah. So you just, yeah. gotta, I think it's, it's all about courtesy and, and, um, <laughs> and, and, and moderation, sure. courtesy and moderation. Yeah. Moderation's key. Absolutely. So, so okay. So <laughs> I, I think like, uh, Unless something major happened in college, you went to BU, right? Right there in Boston. Yeah. Yep. Um, yep. Anything major like that we need to discuss? Tragic, uh, especially. I, um, love, I love tragedy. <laughs> uh, no, no, there's no tragedy there. Um, no. No like major I, major life experiences that set you on your course. Not in college. Nope. 
Okay. Not at all. And then you wound no. up and then you wound up in New York. Yep, I moved to New York in 2005 to start grad school. Okay. With, yeah. With the idea of being coming a poet and a writer or what? Yeah. So like I graduated from from college uh, you know, a few years before that and I was like I was like I wanted my MFA. I knew I was a poet cuz it had been on my wall since I was like 8. Yeah. Um, but I, when I graduated from high school, I mean, from college, I, I just didn't know anything. I knew I was an idiot. Just like, I didn't have anything to write about. And I didn't like, I wanted to go to grad school when I, um, when I like had life experience. So I, I eventually like got, I got some life experience between college and grad school. And, um, and then I felt like, okay, yeah, this is going to, this is the time. So I applied to, um, grad school and I went to the new school for Mm -hmm. my MFA. The new school. I always like that name. What is the new school? Yeah. Well, it's like it was. It well, I think like it's like it started as a new school for social research, and I think that it has. Although, like, my memory is is kind of fuzzy on like facts, um, but I believe it was started by like kind of just rebellious political rebels who like wanted to start the school in the village, um, and it wasn't the first MFA program, but it, but the village was definitely like a place where writers gathered and, um, you know, but is I think st- they were social, I think they were socialists, I want to say. Okay. Yeah. I like that. I don't know. Yeah. So they were socialists and then the MFA program didn't begin there until the, around the year 1999, 1998. Okay. Um, so I got there around 2000, in 2005 where I, you know, totally fell in love with it and, embrace the writer's life. It was so different from Boston. I felt like, you know, while my friends in Boston were grand, were and are grand and I love them, um, I, I needed like something more and, um, you know, hanging out with a bunch of weird writers in New York was like exactly what I needed. Oh, yeah. Um, so it was like totally like, like I was like able to breathe. I felt like, you know, the, the change between like black and white and color, like in the wizard of Oz, like, okay, Oh wait, there are other people who are weird. Like I am. Yeah. No, uh, I always say that about yeah. it, the MFA. I mean, cause the MFA it's like, you know, eternally debated and you know, mm-hmm. sort of a tired debate, but yeah. uh, if there's any, I mean, if there's one thing that's like inarguable, it's like, it's just nice to be around other people who are into it because otherwise, you're, absolutely. otherwise it's pretty hard to meet them. Absolutely. Yeah. And, um, yeah, so it was, it was really great. And so, um, and I had had like, um, I was, when I moved from Boston to New York, I extracted from like a bad relationship. And so like, it was particularly kind of like, I kind of needed that to survive like life. Like, yeah. um, it was like a huge thing and it took me like a few years to adjust. And like, cause I was like, had, you know, been with this guy and now I was like the single girl. Um, so it was really, uh, it changed my life completely. Yeah. And like, I'm completely thankful to New York city for, for being New York city as crazy as it, as a place as, as it is. Yeah. Um, it's totally changed my life. That's great. And I like, yeah. I, I, I wrestle with this a little bit. Uh, but I think I like the crazy, like some people, I like living where it's crazy. I, maybe, I'll uh-huh. cha- maybe I'll yeah. change down the road, but there's something to be said. Yeah. Living where it's crazy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it is crazy. And sometimes I'm like, I don't know why the fuck I'm here. Like, I kind of hate New York too, and I love it and I hate it. Yeah, no. I it's mean, like it's like this like crazy beast. Like I don't know if you feel this way about LA. That's a big city too, but like with New York, it's like like I'm like I feel like I'm always on the brink of like just giving up on it, and like I don't know what I would do 
where I would go. Right, me neither. Um, That's my whole yeah. <laughs> What else do I yeah. do? <laughs> I'm, I'm yeah, like, where do I go? Um, you know, there's always the comfort of Boston. But, um, you know, for a while, I wasn't entertaining that idea at all. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know what's next. But for now, it's like it's my home, I guess. Sure. Okay. And then yeah. let's uh, – but I, I can't let you go, uh, you know, out of this conversation without like a substantial conversation about death because – Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. I, mean, you're, I love you're, death. Your book is – yeah, <laughs> your book is <laughs> – is preoccupied with it uh like let's just start there like what, sure. what what happened and why are you writing about your dead okay yeah um so i was like really terrified of death um following well not just terrified it was like kind of in my brain um three of my relatives died in about in very quick succession my my grandmother passed away um she was old and she also had i Alzheimer's and uh, my uncle Ed died my my dad's sister's husband he died of emphysema um so he was he was like in his early 60s it was an early death I guess um and gruesome that's a gruesome death really really awful and um and then my my grandmother who also died her um her husband my step-grandfather Marty um, to whom Elephants in Mourning, the poem is dedicated to, he died. So they all died within a year and a half. And I was, because I'm the writer of my family, I was asked to eulogize each of them, which I did, you know, I was honored to be asked and to be given that responsibility. But it was, they were also very difficult to write because um, it's Indeed. not like a poem where, a, like, they're going to clap at the end, you know? Yeah, well, no, I had to do that at my buddy's funeral a couple years ago, and I was really tired. It was really tragic. He was, you know, he's like a guy I grew up with, and it was a, tra- yeah. you know, tragic loss. And, like, uh, I was honored to do it, but I just, I look back, and, like, I kind of hate, I wrote, like, a little poem, because it feels like you have to write, like, a prayer almost or something. Yeah, yeah. And I, well, back, yeah, and, and I just feel it, like a sh- I feel like I, I feel like he would make fun of me for having written what I wrote. Yeah, he probably would. But, you know, I think that like the fact that you're able to like reflect on the fact that he would make fun of you, it like says something very sweet about your friendship with him yeah. in that, like, you know, your your dynamic would be like he would he'd, make, he'd give you some shit, which is, I guess, just a, an example of his memory living on. Um, but I, I mean, I didn't really have that kind of worry about it, but like. I just felt like instead of like kind of processing the deaths, I was involved in like writing this document of memory and like honor for each of them. And like, um, and for some reason I thought that like during a eulogy, you're supposed to cry. So like I would give these examples that would like make my relatives were just fucking like sobbing or, and like, I really thought that I was, that was the job of the eulogist and and to, to um, give examples of, you know, funny or, you know, honorable examples of this person to make, you know, everybody remember them for a few minutes. I think that's what, I think I did the right thing, but like, um, yeah, my family members all were very happy with each one. That's why I kept getting asked to do them, but you know, it's hard. And I like the pressure's on for the next death. Yeah, I know. I'm just like, Jesus Christ. (laughs) My sister's a comic book artist. Like ask her, she can can do a storyboard. So, um, so like, so yeah, so I was, I wrote these three and like, you know, during one of them, like I had this little tiff with my mom and then like to get back at her, I wrote like the most devastating eulogy you could possibly write. So of course, like we made up and hugged at the end. So like, 
there was, you know, the, the, so that was going on. And then I was so sad after the third one, like when my step-grandfather died, because he was really like this kind of guy who would like glue the family together. And like, he was just like the best of people. Um, and after he died, I just was like not sleeping. I was just like, okay, I wrote this eulogy, go back to New York from Boston. And um, I'm just like laying in bed, like staring at the sky, like at, at the ceiling, just kind of like, what's the point? So I went to my doctor and I was like, hey, I'm not sleeping. Can I get some Ambien? And my doctor was like, what's going on in your life? And I was like, you know, well, three of my relatives died. And she's like, oh, let's give you some antidepressants. And I was like, sure. Like, I was like, I'll try anything. Sure. Maybe I'm a poet. Maybe I'm just depressed. Um, <laughs> right. And so, like, I took those pills for a year and a half and I didn't write anything. It was like the worst. And like, I, you know, I finished grad school. I was like, you know, you know, adjunct teaching. I was like, you know, a person in the world, but I wasn't writing. And I was like, okay, this is kind of weird. So after I went off of the medication, because I think I realized like that it was not the right thing for me. Um, I then like had this insane flood of productivity, um, that kind of like, hasn't really stopped since. Um, I, Immediately, I wrote Elephants in Mourning within like a month of, you know, going off of the antidepressants, I believe, because like I was, I had been kind of spending that year and a half, like subconsciously processing um, these deaths and just kind of thinking about mourning and what it meant and what it meant to like, what does it like mean? how important the people around you are and like the fact that they do leave something behind, like, and then I was just sitting at home drinking coffee and watch, and like watching, I love watching like nature videos and like anything discovery channel related. Like that's my shit. So I happened to come across this, um, this show of, um, elephant morning rituals and, um, yeah, it's so sad, I, so touching to watch like how elephants. Oh my God. It's like, it's like you feel, you can see, like I can see this like double reciprocal incarnation between you two. Like, Oh, I feel like this, um, this connection to this thing that's not a human, but I feel like I know what he's thinking because the things that he's doing with his body are the things that I would do with my body in a, in like a mourning or keening position. Um, so there's so and so like when I saw that, I just like had to read everything about them, watch more YouTube videos, and then I wrote Elephants in Mourning in like two days, in like one weekend, and then it, it took me about a year to edit it, but um, it was pretty much like the skeleton of it was all like there. Um, and yeah, I feel like that again, once again, like, just like peas cannot be eaten with ease, like the experience of writing that poem, um, heals me on some level. So, and what, um, do, you, what do you, what do you, like, how do you feel about it now? Like when you talked about like what mourning means and like what death means, like, yeah. cause like I ask, I, I, you know, I move around with this stuff. I go through phases yeah. where I'll be like, okay, I'm cool with it. I'm cool with it. I got, you yeah, know, yeah. I, I got this. And then like. Yeah. I'll, I'll like feel like a, a bump on like the back of my neck or something, and I'll be yeah. like, "Oh shit, I'm dying!" And then I get like terrified. Yeah. And so like, yeah, it's, like, it's how, a process, right? How do you get? But how do you get to be okay with it? There are people who have done this. I believe that. Like, yeah, how yeah. Do you, how do you get to where you're like, okay, I'm okay. I'm. I'm death well, is... I mean, I think, yeah, I think it's just like it's a reality, and like I think that um, like anything, it depends on what else is going on in life. Like, um, if I'm particularly lonely and I'm like, you know, I have asthma for example. So it's like, if my like asthma is like been shitty and I might, you know, I'm supposed to like, I'm feeling broke. It's between semesters and I'm like, 
you know, I can't afford to like buy some sushi or eating like beans and rice. Um, like if, it, I think it depends on like if everything else in my life feels shitty, then I'm going to be more afraid of death. But if like I feel loved, I'm socializing a lot, I can afford the occasional <laughs> sushi dinner. Right. Um, I like the little creature comforts. If I feel like, um, you know, loved, um, I think that I'm going to be less. And then, and then something happens where like I'm reminded of death or something like the, the, the cruel wind of death befalls me. Um, I think I can like, I'm more, resi- I think it's about resiliency, right? Like if, if there, are, if, if there's not enough else to like fill it up, if you're empty, you're empty. That's how, I don't know if I'm not, if I'm explaining it right, but that's how I've learned to um, just deal with death. Like for example, and even then I like, you know, I wrote elephants in mourning. I was, you know, I thought I thought was thinking so much about death, but then like the following summer, I, you know, I really thought I was going to die for no reason. Like there was nothing there. I was not sick. Um, I just felt like I was going to die. Uh, why? I felt completely what triggered in- it? What triggered nothing? Um, I think, well, it's like, it's, it's like, like I said, like, I think it's like what the, the other things going on in, in life. Like, I think like I had to move. I was totally broke because I'm an adjunct. So like, you know, since then I've like come up with strategies to make money and all well, trying to, but like, I was really poor. I had to move. I didn't know where I was going to move. Um, I had to move in like a month and I just felt like I didn't have, I didn't know what to do and I didn't think I was going to make it. Like I didn't, I, you know, I'm not suicidal. I would not, you know, not that way, but I think it was just this like big feeling of death. Yeah. Like the big unknown. Right. And like, there's no reason why, like I won't like step in on off, you know, I'll see the walk light. There's no reason why a, a giant Mack truck won't just appear out of nowhere and, <laughs> and kill me. Like, yeah. wh- like everything felt meaningless on that level. Right. Well, and it's also um, like, it's, I also feel like sometimes cause I'm still young. I'm like, God, I have, I have so much I want to do. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's my whole thing. Like, and that's like the last section of, of my dad, um, the skull behind my face. It's really about that. Like, I'm not ready yet. Like, Hey, Hey Grim Reaper, can you just come back later? Yeah. Um, and you feel it and like, it just feels like, I think it's like a form of like anxiety or depression, right. but, um, because it just feels like it's a big, it's a big like hole, right. Of like unknown. And so I think that like, for me, it comes across when like, when I'm stressed out and anxious for very, very concrete reasons, but like not knowing like what to do and like feeling alone. Well, if I'm up, if I'm up at three in the morning, forget about it. Like if I wake up, yeah, yeah. like three to 5 AM, like it's going to be about death. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, It's always about death. And it's like, but it's like, it's such a weird thing to return to. when I think about it, it's like, why don't I return to love or why don't I return to, you know, like, but I think it's normal. I think it's what people do. It's it's dark. It's a lot. You're alone. You're up. Yeah, and you have like probably all have like people in our lives who have gone. Yeah, right. Well, if I mean and, most of us anyway, like it depends how long you've been around, but eventually it's gonna happen. Oh yeah, I think like recently somebody told me like you know like I don't know any I've never I don't know anyone who's ever died, and it's like well wait a few minutes. No, yeah, like I had my old roommate. She was that way, and I think in fact she may still <sighs> be that way. She may still be that way. She was like, and she was like, so, and she is like one of the bubbliest, happiest people ever, and. 
because you've never experienced true pain. <laughs> I know. I'm, kind of, I'm, I'm, I'm always kind of like, just, just wait, honey. You've had a lucky ride. Yeah. It's coming for you. you wow. Know? Yeah, totally. Oh, my God. Yeah. It's so, you know, I think it's just like when people are thoughtful and empathetic and um, feel connected to the world around them, you're going to wake up at three in the morning sometimes and, you know, feel like the, the you know, this cold finger on the back of your neck. Yeah. Ugh, sorry. What's, so what's that's okay. So what do you think happens? Do you have any idea? Like, what do you like? Because my concept of it right now is that there's no such thing of de- as death. It's like it's an illusion. And do you that, think, are you saying are you saying that it's more like about like nature cycle? Well, yeah, matter cannot be uh, matter and energy cannot be created or destroyed. It's like sure, yeah, that's very optimistic. Yeah, first law, but I mean, you're right. No, but you're right too. Yeah, it's like yeah. For, so, like uh, you know, but we and we think we're. Uh, this solid self, but we're really, you know, an amalgam and we're all this energy and we're mostly, yeah. we're mostly empty space and water yeah. and whatnot. And like, you know, it'll just, uh, it's an illusion. I don't know exactly what the experience will be like, but then, yeah. Uh, I've been, but do you feel like there'll be like this Brad, like shat, like a, a Brad, like after you die, like that there'll be a Brad energy in the world? Yeah, well, yeah, but in a more, but I think in a more, I see it in more concrete terms. Like everything, I think that you are the sum of your actions. So like all the things yeah. that I did and said in my life and wrote in my mm-hmm. life and this show and like every little thing that you did, every interaction that you had, uh, ripples. And yeah. that includes like having my daughter, that includes like yeah. t- talking to you, like all of that stuff is indestructible and it continues to manifest in various ways. And like, right. that's your, that's your legacy and your, your afterlife, you know, or whatever. But what if there is a giant thumb that presses down on everything like around you? What do you mean? <laughs> like, for example, like say, for example, like, like for me, for example. Okay. So say like I've lived in Boston and New York, right? Yeah. So say there's this, and so people who've read my, even like, even if you're going to talk, we're going to talk about legacy, like I don't have a daughter, but I have like a nephew and like, he's cool. And like, so what if like just one day, um, this giant thumb comes down and presses like every English speaking, um, person and just like, so there's no longer a possibility of a legacy. Well, I mean, then I guess it gets dispersed into the planet or into outer space. So then, so then we're not talking just about like man's creations and man's works. We're talking about like energy and and like that hippie shit, right? Yeah, I mean, can't I mean like yeah. that. I mean, I'm trying to like, I'm always trying to like stay within the bounds of like what we can like uh, rationally yeah. observe and. Yeah, and I feel like you know, as, as a writer, making things and putting things into the world is part of how we make meaning and that we feel a little bit less deathy. Like I certainly am like, if I don't, you know, if I, if I haven't like published, um, like I need to feel like I, I am, I am important sometimes, you know, like, so like, you know, you're texting your friends, you make them laugh. Even that to me is meaningful. Like, um, or writing a poem and even not even publishing it, like just sending it to a friend. Like, that makes me feel like I'm connected to the world around me. And then, like, you know, like just like, like writing like a really like, uh, incredibly weepy eulogy and making your entire family sob. Just like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's impacting my reality. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but also, you know, on, on a practical level, like having a book published, like that will go to many people all around, you know, English speaking America. Sure. Um, 
so that to me it feels like that feels like okay I'm like doing something right I'm I'm help um I feel like I I write a lot of poems because I feel like they can do something yeah I like I get that I get that I think that like uh you know making art or communicating and reaching out to people somehow yeah like i think it's it's easy to sort of i mean especially for writers you know when you're looking at your book sales and you're like oh my god like 47 <laughs> 47 people read this book or bought this book yeah probably 20 of them actually read it and like <laughs> you know it can, yeah. get, it can get a little depressing but like even if it's uh-huh. just even if it's just 20 I, it can sound a little bit yeah those are tw- more, 20 more than wouldn't have ever known what you did right right right. and if you get like even like one or two of them who are like really deeply moved by something or like who read elephants in mourning at at just the right time in their lives when they might be struggling you know like boom you know then yeah you know it makes it all worth it as the saying goes yeah absolutely Absolutely. So I wanted to ask you before I let you go the, uh, about um, your tendency, at least lately, um, to multitask and write. <laughs> yeah, totally. Because uh, this interests me. And I think that it's um, – you, you, have you ever heard of the writer Mark Lehner? He How wrote, do you spell his last name? L-E-Y-N-E-R. He wrote this book called like My Cousin, My Gastroenterologist. And he's like this very strange kind of avant-garde uh, uh-huh. fiction writer. But I remember reading yeah. in an interview with him – and he was talking about how he likes to like he, he has to be like watching TV, listening to the radio, and like, and and like I don't know if he's online, but you know he's doing. Yeah, he sounds like my kind of guy. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, what? How do you do it? Um. Well, for example, like you know, when I wrote Elephants in Morning, I had my laptop in my lap and I was watching TV. You know, so I'll be like involved in like you know, I might not even be writing. I might be checking my email or going on like Jezebel or something like that. <laughs> Um, or, you know, I might be just like reading a book sitting on my couch. Um, and then I'll have like a TV on or a movie on or something. Um, it's more just like about like, um, it's like, it's actually just a way of focusing really. Um, you know, plenty of writers, including like John Ashbury will like incorporate, um, whatever conversations people are having around him, like in his lines in his poems, like that's been written about before. So I'm certainly not unique in like my, um, my dislike of focusing on one thing at a time. Um, I think I just kind of like have like, I get bored. I actually just wrote this essay about boredom that was just got published like today. Um, I just get bored really easily. So like when it's almost like I like to get bored by everything going on around me so that I can focus on the one thing that's really important to me, I guess. But that important thing might be watching a movie or it might be texting, or it might be writing a poem. Um, well, and it's, I, it's, yes, it's but I'm not always. I don't always write like that. Sometimes I am incredibly like singular minded. I think it depends on like what mood I'm in. Uh-huh. Well, but it, you know what it strikes me as like I mean, especially in the, the like the age of Twitter or whatever, where you have all these people. Especially when there's like a media event and yeah. people are like watching and reacting and writing online and like yeah, that's quip, weird, huh? quipping about it. Like it doesn't, it it seems kind of like of a piece with that, like that particular compos- yeah. compositional mode where like you're watching one media and then kind of reacting to it in your poetry or in your poems. Yeah. Yeah. Like, and which is really, you know, ekphrastic writing, um, responding to any kind of uh, other medium in another medium. Yeah. Maybe that's, yeah. what, that's what I should have said, but that's, the, yeah. <laughs> I feel like, 
I feel like that's like, uh, you know, uh, it's a thing. Yeah. It's a thing. It's a thing. And it's increasingly a thing because of the way, like we're all, we all have like seven screens in front of us at once going on. I know. I know. Um, it's true. However, like, I think that there is something to be said for, uh, I mean, many times, most of the poems I do, right. You know, I am like sitting in front of my computer and just writing it like a normal plebeian <laughs> clicking away on my, Mac, on my expensive Mac computer. Um, like everybody else. Um, but, um, but yeah, I think that like there is this, yeah, there is this like, um, people like to be connected to this quote unquote thing that's going on when it's really just like a feed of 140 line character, 140 characters at a time. It's so weird. Yeah, no, I thought, but Like, like we're not really missing out on anything. Like the thing that's the best thing that's happening is just like your own present. Um, but right now, whereas like the future and the past are just, um, as Deepak Chopra would say, like fantasy. Well, sure. Yeah. I mean, and I think too, sometimes like when you're talking about a central media <laughs> event and everybody kind of like jumping in and being in the same feed, like mm-hmm. I sometimes find the reactions better than the thing itself. And like that becomes, Oh yeah, absolutely. And then you don't have to worry about like sitting in front of a computer. Like recently during the Emmys, my, my sisters were both just like, texting me about the red carpet and people's haircuts and i don't have my apartment right now like we just don't have cable so like i don't have access to i'd have to go on my computer and i think i was just like doing something else at night so i'm get, i look at my my texts and i have like 25 texts from my sisters about the emmys and like and then I, when I went through them, I was like, oh, great. I don't have to. Louis C.K. won. Perfect. Like, I don't have to actually yeah, yeah, <laughs> watch this unfold. That's how I am. I love that. I just go to Twitter. Yeah. And like, okay. Tell me what. Okay. Now I know. I don't exactly. Need, yeah. I don't have to actually yeah. suffer through this. But wow. yeah, exactly. Wow. So and so you got uh, my dad and then you've got another book coming out, too. Yeah. Um, my next book, Broad X, will be coming up from Octopus in 2015. Okay. Yeah. So let's I'm pretty psyched. Get here's the message: get off the meds, and you'll start publishing books one after the other. <laughs> yeah, that's all you have to do. Yeah. Wait, wait, but actually, we should put a disclaimer: if you really need the meds, stay on the meds. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I Absolutely. Want, I don't want people jumping off their meds and. Yeah, because you know you are a doctor. Yes. Right. I am. I am. <laughs> In addition to being a licensed podcaster. <laughs> um, well, I've had such fun talking with you. I, oh, me too. I appreciate you taking the time. Congratulations on all your success, and uh, I will look Thank forward you. to Broadax when it rolls out. Thank you, Brad. It was great talking to you. What a fun time. Okay, folks, that's it. That's Amy Lawless. Great guest. Fun talking with her. Her book is called My Dead. It's out there now from Octopus Books. You can find her online at uh, amylawless.blogspot.com. She's still rolling on the uh, blog spot. I like that. She's also on Twitter where her handle is at, uh, at Amy Lawless. Thanks to Kill Rockstars, uh, as usual, for all the great music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Don't forget about the app. This show, uh, it has its own app. It's the official Other People app. It's free. It's available wherever apps are available. You get it uh, on your device, and then you don't have to do anything. New episodes automatically upload to the app. You can download episodes to listen to while you're offline. Uh, You get the most recent 50 episodes for free, and then uh, you can also sign up for premium right there within the app, and that's how you stream the full archives, all 300 and some odd episodes. Uh, That's very cheap. So go get the app. The app itself is free. Uh, So, you know, the unlived life, bifurcation, trying to find glory in my small, little, mediocre life. (laughs) 
accepting that mediocrity, perhaps even reveling in it. Realizing that even a mediocre life is miraculous. Do you know what I'm saying? Is that the objective? Is that what I'm trying to do? Finding something to stimulate me uh, well into my 80s, like Joan Rivers. Something that will keep me going, keep you, uh, keep my uh, mind sharp, my energy going. Here's the thing. Joan Rivers, it wasn't even her time. This is a surgery accident. That's what bums me out. I totally expected her to live to 100. She seemed indestructible. But, you know, was it a plastic surgery? This is the thing. If it was a plastic surgery of some kind, and I don't know that it was. I'm not 100% sure what the deal, you know, what the deal is, but the woman obviously had a lot of plastic surgery. Uh, was it another needless plastic surgery that ended her life accidentally? I guess you could say that if, if that were the case, and I guess you could say that vanity uh, played a role in her demise, you know, it's just a bummer. So please remember that Somerset mom once had four plays running simultaneously in London and that, uh, William Saroyan died of a stroke. That's it for now. Thanks again to Amy Lawless. Great name. I'll say it again. I wish it was my last name. Amy Lawless. Her book is called My Dead. Go get that. Thanks to Octopus Books. Thanks to you guys for listening. I appreciate that. And, uh, you know, once if you if you have a bifurcated life story, please uh, email me, letters at otherppl.com, and I'll be back uh, with another episode soon. I hope. <laughs> I feel like like Amy's book is called My Dead, Joan Rivers Died, Bifurcated Lives. I feel like there's like, uh, you know, an air of uh, mortality to this episode. But uh, life will hopefully continue for us all, and we can all reconvene uh, the next time around. All right. 